Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. In 1975, this photography book came out called Street Writers. It had black and white photographs, mostly portraits, shot in and around the east side of Los Angeles. In Street Writers, you see a lot of young people, teenagers, children, young adults. They're sitting on bleachers, playing in the storm drain, jogging past the liquor store. All of this was shot by this young Italian photographer, Guzmano Cesaretti. And pretty much all of Cesaretti's photos have one thing in common, graffiti. On the walls of shops, on abandoned buildings, on the riverbank, pretty much any blank canvas. And if, when I say graffiti, you think of, you know, big colorful bubble letters, this isn't that. It's sparse. The script is jagged and strange, but it's also neat and uniform, almost like ancient runes. Alongside the writing, You might see the occasional skull, but that's basically it. Back then, in L.A., it was about writing, about telling the world these streets, this neighborhood, belongs to us. Cesaretti's photography in the book is arresting and dramatic. He's compassionate towards his subjects and honest about the circumstances in which they live. Street Writers, the book, has been out of print for a long time. If you're looking for an original copy, it could run you $700 online. But there's good news. Street Writers, a guided tour of Chicano graffiti, is again in print for the first time in decades. It's available now in a beautiful, expanded hardcover edition. To commemorate the new book, I talked with Cesaretti, the photographer, and Chaz Bojorquez, a veteran street artist and one of the book's original subjects. Let's get into it. Guzman Chaz, welcome to Bullseye. It's great to have you on the show. The book is totally incredible. Great. Chaz, I, I want to start a little bit with your story. How deep does your family's roots go in Los Angeles? You know, we, we my mother kind of migrated here during the, um, during the Depression, you know, from Texas and all that. So she was like 10 years old here in the 30s. But she went to local high schools. That's where she met my father, who was kind of visiting from Tijuana. So my father's border, border culture, you know, so that we're talking about the 40s. And they kind of got married right after the war. So I was born there in uh, 49. So we have a long history here. And uh, and I call myself not only an Angelino, but this is my Atzlan. This is what my heart is. Yeah. The 40s were obviously, or maybe not obviously to some of our listeners, a pretty tumultuous time for Latinos and especially Mexican-Americans in Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. How did your parents think about themselves in that context? Well, my mother was at the movies downtown during the 1943 riots. She saw the sailors come in. The lights go on. The sailors came in, pick out all the young Latino men and take them outside on uh, Broadway and uh, strip them and burn their clothes. She experienced that. She told me that. I always knew that as a, as a child. And it was because they felt that the Latino culture wasn't contributing enough or they didn't like their style because, you know, they were in uh, zoot suits. Zoot suits was very maybe derogative at that time. It really came from uh, Harlem. It was a black thing. But it was also Mexico. Famous actors down there, Tintan, used to wear a zoot suit. And then here in Los Angeles, the Filipinos started first because they were the first organizers. You know, you understand? They were the first organizers out in the fields. Cesar Chavez followed them and all that. And so my mother used to tell me, yeah, they used to wear the zoot suits up to their armpits. <laughs> and then my uncle had a zoot suit, and he said, yeah, we had come with drapes. He said, yeah, we paid $200 then to have them tailored because they're not off the rack. You know, this is a time where people are making Fifty, sixty dollars uh, a week, and all that. So that was a big investment. So uh, my mother's experience and all that, and then my sense of roots here. I knew, in some ways, I was a son of Los Angeles, but also I'm minority in Los Angeles. That's changed since then. 
Where in Los Angeles did you grow up? <laughs> we just drove drove by. We're talking about. It. I was uh, born on uh, Queen of Angels on uh, Beaudry and Sunset, in Chinatown. My, I have a twin brother. We were both raised there in, in Chinatown until about five, and then we moved up the river, the Royal Seco River, Highland Park Avenue, sixty. That's where I made my home. Since then, I've been there for over sixty years, fifty years, sixty years, and went to local high schools, the junior highs, and all that. That's where I call my home. When you were a kid, before you started writing, what did you see on walls around the neighborhood around you? <laughs> I saw magic. I saw this stylized writing. To me, it was not only hieroglyphics and that it looked like an ancient script, which I gave a lot of respect to, but also I knew it was for my culture and I wanted to learn more about it. And I go, who are those people? who are strong enough to put their identity out there with a spray can. See, I was, I'm young enough, to, I know when the first spray can came into existence, and I saw letters from being paintbrushed, spray can, they got bigger, larger, the gang started multiplying and all that. So in some ways, that was the new social media. I think people, when you describe graffiti, like if they imagine anything it might be that kind of like, those kind of neon green bubble letters that were in TV commercials in 1989. Or they might imagine the, the graffiti that they see around their neighborhood that might be, you know, little tags or uh, things that are part of a kind of international graffiti aesthetic that grew out of those bubble letters. But the kind of graffiti that you're describing seeing as a kid looked very different. So describe for the audience what it looked like. Graffiti was there as a kid from the 40s, from since the riots of 43. Latino community in East LA kind of since united behind their baseball teams became the gangs. White Fence, Clover, Avenues, those were just streets and, and neighborhoods. They started identifying their communities through the graffiti by marking out their territories that those were the boundaries of their of their of their communities in the streets. In a sense of a self-identity, not only to mark off their territories, but they were using prestigious letters and doing a roll calls. Everybody who was in the group had their name on the wall. Of course there was one person who wrote it, the the, the guy who had the best script. And it would be years later working in movie advertising, I realized how the formatting was, which I encountered in uh when I was in Europe in Sumerian uh, clay uh, first writings, these are clay tablets. Basically, they were set up as headline body copy logo. In advertising, I learned those t uh, terms and also how to apply them and what they're, how they're used. I saw the same thing in graffiti. So graffiti to me was a public statement. Also a place of allegiance where you not only claim your, your community, love for your community, but also love for your gang. And also, I am here to protect it. Outsiders, beware. That's what was intent. So our style was black letters, all capitals, only done in black. And it was done script style, flush left, flush right. We had name of the gang at the top, the roll call, and then whoever was writing it or the street or what came, that was kind of like the logo at the bottom. That lasted for decades. Yeah, It was actually, that is still going on. The New York style, started there in the late 60s. Colors. Right in the 70s. They're the ones who are the bubble letters, the colorful, the, the stars. And wild that. styles. Yeah. The wild style. And, but they, you notice in the script, they use upper and lower case. We all use capital letters. They are impersonal. They're writing about themselves. They do not claim their culture, their street, or anything. Well, some of them claim the, they would put a number of the street. But it wasn't about being Puerto Rican or being um, certain neighborhood or anything like that. It was about getting up on subways. And it became famous. I bowed to the New York style because that's what created the doorway to the world graffiti movement. Yeah. In years down with the advent of the computer, they started looking up history of graffiti. That's where they find us. We're a subculture, but we were there 20 years before they were. So when did you start writing? And what did you start writing? <laughs> I started writing uh, late. I knew I was always an artist. 
I started going to Chouinard Art Institute as a ceramics major. So we're talking 60, 1967, but I still wanted to do graffiti and I was tagging at night. I started in 1969, I finally did my first major tag of Senor Suerte, Mr. Lucky. And uh, I started a new style. In 69, that movie came out, um, The Graduate. And there's a statement in there, older man telling the young graduate, you know, beware, there's a one word you should know, plastics is your future. And at that time, plastics was a future. And I go, I remember in Tijuana, there used to be all these graffiti stencils of the political parties, the PAN and the PRI, two color or one color. I go, guerrilla style, let me make a stencil of my tag of a skull representing Dia de los Muertos, the Day of the Dead is the skull. Superfly, New York, Pimp Daddy hat, which was the big movies at that time, uh, Superfly and Shaft, which kind of gave us our sense of identity because he was the first time minorities were, Pimp Daddies were superheroes. So, Guzmano, <laughs> you're not from Los Angeles. No. How did you end up here? Well, I was 19 years old. I left Italy. My father gave me uh, tickets and I came to Los Angeles, to uh, New York in 1963. And uh, the day that Kennedy was killed, I arrived to New York. So they just, I go outside and they put television uh, at the windows and everybody was looking, Kennedy got killed, you know, it was crazy. So I stayed in New York for 10 days and then I, I went to uh, Chicago that I have an uncle in Chicago, and I stayed there for six months, six years, and then to Los Angeles. In 1969, I came to Los Angeles, and I got a job in 1970 at the Huntington Library as a photographer, and then at night, I would go to around to look at the city, and then I discovered East L.A., and East LA was my favorite part of the city because everything that I, it was, for me, it was amazing. There were people on the street, children. You know, I went to, I went to, uh, in different parts of Los Angeles and there was nobody on the street, you know. Um, but anyway, East LA was my favorite place. Do you remember when you first started recognizing the pieces that were on the wall? In 1970, I started to photograph East LA, and I photograph in East LA, and I see graffiti on the wall, and I say, oh my God, you know, that's beautiful, and I photograph, and I couldn't understand what was, I, I wasn't able to understand it because my English wasn't that great at that time. So... In 1973, we had a, a dinner and I had people and I made a, a, a little a book, you know, that I was going to to publish. I had all the people from East LA with me. I had click car clubs, graffiti people, gangster people. Every, every. So they saw me and, oh, great, it's got a book coming. It's got a good book coming. So... The graffiti, it was something that I needed to learn. And I said, I got to figure out who's going to be the, the, the guy that's going to help me and take me around and look at the graffiti and tell me what the meaning of the graffiti. So I had this good friend in, uh, in uh, Pasadena. She said, oh, my God, I know the guy, the graffiti guys. I know the guy that is really good in graffiti. And that was him. So we met, we spent time together, and he told me, or he took me around and showed me how the graffiti is, what it means with the graffitis. At night, we'll go out and do graffiti on the walls. We do graffiti here, graffiti there. We smoke pot, marijuana. <laughs> we, you know, we, we used to go amazing. We used to go drink. We used to do all sorts of great, crazy things together. And, uh, but he is the man that he opened the door to graffiti for me. He's the guy that he 
really shows me what graffiti is and what it means. To, so I started writing graffiti too. And, you know, and he was amazing because I took photographs of him making graffitis, graffitis on the wall, graffiti on the, on the, on the river, you know. What did you think, Chaz, what did you think when this Italian guy showed up and was like, and was like, what's the story with this graffiti? Latino people are very protective, you know, that. But actually, we were just talking about it on the way over here. Uh, Guzmano, you look Latino, you know, for one. Yeah. And then he didn't come with any attitude. He came correct. Right. He came and he met the families. Yeah. He met the parents. He met the mother and all that stuff. You yeah. know, he used to take pictures of them. So that's how we met him, and that's how he was uh, uh, um, accepted. But I have to say, Guzmano was the first person that actually took us serious. He actually took pictures of cholos. He actually took one of the first person ever actually took a picture of me doing graffiti. Yeah. Nobody ever did that, not even yeah. our parents, you know. Yeah. Uh, so he took an outsider, it took a third eye, an Italian. Hey, Italians are some of the best designers, <laughs> you know. Uh, took a, an outsider to come in and appreciate what we were doing and actually do something with it because we could, everything that we did with our graffiti, nobody accepted because it was dressed in gangster, in blood, in bad history, in a minorities uh, barrier of East LA, the tortilla curtain. It was in those times, believe me, a lot of racism in those times. And there was no opportunity for us. Right. But this book came out and he gave us pride. The first time I saw the other graffiti guys, I go, boy, these guys are good. Otherwise, we're just kind of having fun. We're just yeah. a bunch of kids. Yeah. So that's what Guzmano did for us. So much more with Chaz Bojorquez and Guzmano Cesaretti still to come. Stay with us. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor Green Chef. Green Chef is a USDA-certified organic meal kit offering plans for every lifestyle, including paleo, plant-powered, keto, and balanced living. With their wide variety of high-quality, clean ingredients, seasonally sourced for peak freshness, you can feel great about what you're eating and how it got to your table. Get $90 off your first month, including free shipping at greenchef.com slash 90bullseye and use code 90bullseye. Welcome back to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guests are Chaz Bojorquez and Guzmano Cesaretti. Chaz is a longtime L.A. street artist who's been writing graffiti continuously since the 1970s. Guzmano is a photographer and the author of the book Street Writers, a guided tour of Chicano graffiti. To the extent that a photography book can be a cult classic, Street Writers is one. It's been out of print for decades, but it was just republished this year. Let's get back into our conversation. One of the things about graffiti that I think is really interesting is that it is a form that is dominated by, I mean, there are many people who write graffiti their whole lives. Chaz, you're one of them. But it's a form that's dominated by like 15-year-olds, mostly 15-year-old boys, although there are uh, some pretty cool young women writers in this book. And like, that is just a very particular part of your life. You know what I mean? And one of the things that you say in the book, Chaz, uh, is like, it's just a time in your life where like, if you're into something, you just do it all the time. Right. <laughs> you just practice all the time. It's your whole life. It's your whole thing. That was our computer. That was our iPad. That was our phone. There was no malls. We would all hang out at the beach and throw rocks at the Z-Boys, you know. Well, we're a mixed culture because we also skated on steel wheels in Highland Parks, all these hills. And at night, well, during the day, I would go to Chouinard Art Institute and do figure drawing and painting my ceramics. But at night, it was mine. It was my friends and would go out there. Many times I would go, 
go out by myself. I'll take a little, you know, little uh, six pack of beer, you know, uh, they also fit spray cans in there. So a couple of beers, four spray cans, and my radio, big boom box, go down there to, uh, to the river at night by myself. The freeway would be going by with the headlights flickering across. It looked like a black and white ancient movie, flickering lights, like I said, diamond studded highway. So it was romantic. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it was yeah. nice. It was safe. Yes. And I could write on these sloped walls and walk up and down and, and write 40 foot tall letters all the way down with my big paintbrush or my spray can. And one thing we didn't ask, we didn't need permission. That was the freedom. Graffiti gave us a lot of freedom. We didn't have to prove it to anybody except Guzmano showed up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and put a mirror to us and yeah. said, listen, you guys are doing something incredible. I yes. Go, really? It was incredible to me. Extremely incredible because it was something special, you know, that I never seen before. Graffiti in Italy, it's like this, you know, like that, like that. But the way they did it in black, in with the letter, you know, it's special. It was special, you know, and I, you know, it's different than any any graffiti in the world. Los Angeles is such a particular place. Like I live in the neighborhood where you grew up. I live down a little bit towards Lincoln Heights and Cypress Park, but. Oh, yeah. um, I think probably I still my, my house still counts as Highland Park. And um I was talking the other day to this guy, Roy, who owns the restaurant down the street from my house. And uh shout out to La Beja. And I'm talking to Roy, and Roy grew up in the neighborhood, and you know, he's 60-ish. Mm -hmm. I was like, what kind of what kind of stuff did you guys get up to in the neighborhood when you were a kid? You know, because he grew up in the neighborhood, and I'm and he goes, Oh yeah, we all used to pile into the cars and then go surfing. <laughs> and I was like, for real, Roy? <laughs> out to go surfing wow. with your homeboys from Highland Park? He's like, yup. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> That's the beauty of LA. It's an area yeah. mixed culture. Look, you know, yeah. take Cheech Marin. You know, okay, yeah. he has a bandana. He has a, uh, um, he's riding in his low rider, but it's a convertible with a surfboard sticking out of the back. You know, uh, Snoop Dogg, black rapper, he's got a low rider. I mean, mm -hmm. we all cross cultures in Los yeah. Angeles. Yeah. Now, one of the things about Los Angeles graffiti that you mentioned briefly, but I think is worth highlighting, is that in New York graffiti culture, the idea was always to go all city. So you painted a train because a train left your neighborhood and went other places and made you famous there, right. right? If your style was distinct enough, if your piece was big and amazing enough, it rode the train to other boroughs. What you're describing, Chaz, is mostly graffiti that is at home and for the people who are at home rather than designed to travel. That seems like a big difference. You nailed it. Yeah. Their graffiti was about to get their imagery and to be famous for their subways to go down up and down Manhattan for some art curator or a gallery or a photographer, as we know, famous photographers, to make them famous. That's a New York sense of mentality, you know, and that's a struggle in New York. I understand that lifestyle. L.A. it's different. We're a lot more laid back. We did graffiti only for ourselves. Yeah, Like I said, we didn't have to prove it to anybody because there was nobody out there. There was no audience. There was no dialogue of graffiti. There was no word of bombing or tagging or all city was all New York like that. We kept it within the boundaries of our own neighborhood, just like the gang tradition. Yeah. yeah. It was a graffiti by us for us for decades. Why did you keep writing, Jazz? Because this is something, you know, one of the things that you describe in the book is that a lot of teenagers in your neighborhood would basically write until they could get a car and then they'd be into cruising. <laughs> <laughs> or a first girlfriend or a first baby. Right. Yeah. Um, I loved it. I truly, truly loved it. It was magical to go out and write tags. And the friends I made 
were incredible. They're still friends. Yeah. I was 20 years older than most of the graffiti guys there in Los Angeles. When they became of age during hip hop, uh, during the early 90s, I was turning 40 and they were 18 and all that. Uh, we had a lot of conversations. They hated my work. They said, we don't want to do cholo gangster like our brothers who are in prison do. Mm-hmm. We want to do hip hop New York style, you know, multicolor and all that. Right. Do fine, you know. But our tradition is this. In some ways, they, Guzman also reinforced of what I do. Plus, yeah. my bad boy attitude was, I'm going to put it in your face. If you don't like it, that's what I'm going to do more of. Right. <laughs> and being an art student all my life, an artistic person, which I wanted to be an architect. So I did a lot of architecture drawing. I had, I knew geometry, mathematics. I knew perspective. I knew all that. In some ways, graffiti brought all that together for me. To me, it was an artistic movement, and I knew it. I knew it was a, a movement before anybody else did. So right. I said, okay, it's mine. It motivated me. Could I sell a painting? No. Could I get a gallery show? No. no. Everybody was rejecting it except the homies and Guzmano. So sometimes when I see uh, an Avenue 43 tag up on a wall uh, where I live, if I see it crossed out, it's not crossed out usually by a writer who's trying to get their name up there. It's usually crossed out by, you know, somebody who's writing MS-13 or another kind of like gang. It's, it's the other gang. Yeah. And so gangs have, you know, gangs have a variety of relationships to criminality, right? right? Mm-hmm. Like, yes. There are, I think, MS-13 and its tributaries and people who claim allegiance to that idea like, look, that's that's folks who got deported to Central America and started, you know, a cartel, right? Yes, right. Like, yes. and people who wish they were like that. And there are also gangs that are, you know, what if a Lions Club was for fifteen-year-olds? So, what was the what was the relationship when you were a kid with these crews that were getting written up on the wall? Like, what were kids up to? Early on, I had cousins uh, who were gangsters, and they were in prison, and they do leather work and all that stuff. And I had the choice. I could, I could be a gangster or I could be a nerd, a hippie nerd. I didn't want to be a gangster. I'd, I got thrown in jail a couple of times and all that for being at parties, smoking weed and all that. And I go, this place stinks. These men, there's no color. It's just this beige green color mm-hmm. and yell and all that. I go, I'm never going to come to jail again because there's, there's no art. There's no feeling. I hate this place. So I made sure I was not going to be on the wrong side, except nobody's going to catch me doing graffiti ever, never been caught. So the graffiti then was just of this uh, gangster mentality. So CP boys, the gang down the river. That's Cypress Park. Cypress Park and all that. And then we had White Fence, more downtown, we had Dogtown, which was the an- dog animal shelter down in, um, closer to downtown. And so I knew the gang mentality. So I kept it in that realm, never assuming or ever imagining I would ever make a career out of it. I never did art for a career or for a, or for the future or anything. It was always personal, me with my friends. Yeah. You know? Chaz, you've been writing for 50 years. You really never got busted? No. Have you had to run from the cops? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, a couple of times. I, I got busted at the parties, but for graffiti, no. <laughs> no, I've, I've been in jail about five times, something like that. Just BS stuff, you know, as a kid. Since then, I don't double park. I pay all my <laughs> parking tickets. I do not want to be in that system ever again. Right. You don't get out of it. It's a, it's it's something that pulls you down. It takes your art away, you know. Gusmano, looking at the book, yes, there are a lot of documentary photographs of the graph. You know, like there are pictures that are ways of documenting the the way that those pieces look in the landscape, right? Which is probably what people imagine the book is, mm-hmm. right? There are also a lot of 
incredible portraits of people, both at work and, you know, more more traditional kind of portraits, people with their crews or people right. by themselves. Mm-hmm. What did you do when you wanted to take a picture of somebody that's a, you know, a person? How did you, how did you get them to show themselves to you? Well, I introduced myself into the neighborhood by photographing the kids on the street, taking the picture a week later to the mother. Oh, oh, Guzmano took a picture. Oh, oh, he's Italian. Oh, you know, and they were all, all happy because I was an American. I was Italian. I wasn't speaking good English. So they were speaking to me in, a little better in Spanish, a little bit, you know, it, it, it was great. So I, I introduced myself into the neighborhood first by going around taking pictures to the kids and and giving the picture to them without any, you know, just free photographs. And uh, so they opened slowly. They opened the door to me and said, "Well, he's 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 perfect." You know, and so they 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 were like gangs. There is so many gangs in East LA, you know, but not not necessarily bad gangs, but they were gangs. Just every neighborhood had a gang, and uh, and they were all good to me. They opened the door to me, and then when they were doing something bad, saying, "Oh, we gotta go," you know, "We gotta do," "We gotta do." And I said, okay, okay, come back, <laughs> you know. But I never saw him doing anything bad because maybe they never did anything bad, you know. The roughest picture in the book, Guzmano, is a group of cholas, and they're kind of they're kind of arrayed. Like they've got there, they know what they're up to. <laughs> like, right, right. They're like, "Oh, you want a picture?" Yes. Mm-hmm. And and w- one of these girls is up in front, and she's picking her fingernail with a knife. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> she's got like a real knife. Yes. Not you know, this yes, isn't a, a real knife. This isn't a Swiss Army knife. Yes. And she's she's just got it down there at her waist, pick, yes. picking her nail. It's like, oh, this these are the folks who who showed you a little a little toughness right like yes. a little bit of a little bit of something it's yeah. the cholas it's it's not the dudes yeah it's true <laughs> yeah i give a lot of credit to Guzmano because you know he didn't just shoot our group our gang and all that since then he's gone out to the white aryans gangsters the black bikers the gangsters in Panama City, yeah, and all that. And he's made friends with all of them. He's in, infiltrated, be able to infiltrate those cultures and make beautiful photographs. Yeah. You know, I yeah. mean, I'm a pretty tough person. I don't take crap from anybody, but I wouldn't do what you do. <laughs> you know, <laughs> so he came proud. He came fearless. Yeah, into our community. Yeah, that's what it took. Yeah, that's why we respected him. So, Chaz, one of the first things that you said in this conversation was that Los Angeles was your Aslan. Aslan is like a is like a both both literal and metaphorical homeland for Mexican people and is, you know, it's sort of like a cross-border uh, cultural identity, right? And it's an idea that was that became incredibly popular um, with the Chicano movement in the late 1960s and, and 1970s. Um, so how did your relationship to your neighborhood and these things that people did in your neighborhood inform your relationship to being Chicano and thinking of yourself as Chicano? Being a Chicano did not come up easily in that I'm Latino, but uh, like, uh, you know, fourth generation here, very much American, but I didn't feel like an acceptance and all that. And, not feeling in both in both cultures, I mean, there's a famous Mexican Codis ancient uh, Aztec book, which shows they all came from the central of the United States and walked. There's actually little footprints written in the in the in the Codis in the in the long pamphlets of them walking down to Mexico City and finding their Atzlan, their famous homeland. But since then. That little footprint has returned, and there should be another Cody's with all the little footprints coming back to the United States, you know. 
I found my cultural, you know, heart in Los Angeles. I mean, I cruised uh, Hollywood Boulevard. That's where we, you know, I saw Jimi Hendrix. I saw all these, The Doors, Sonny and Cher and all that. That was my his history. So my heart is here in Los Angeles. This is my Atlan, Hollywood. I claim this place. That gave me the right to write graffiti on it, you know. It gave me the right to write my names on the walls and claim it, you know. Because when you write your name, it makes you famous. But if you write on the city wall, it makes you immortal. It lasts forever. That's what my yeah. focus was, you know. Since then, career bl uh, bloomed, you know. Yeah. I didn't expect to be here speaking to you. <laughs> I'm glad I am. <laughs> yes. What was it like for you, Chaz, when you were writing, you were working in creative advertising, you were being a fine artist, right? But in street years, you were an ancient grandpa, <laughs> you know, when you were like 40 or whatever, True. right? True. <laughs> like, what was it like for you to see, to like try and relate to kids who are writing graffiti in Cholo culture in 1990 or 1985 or 1997? Oh, you're bringing me up a lot of anger, a lot of frustration because there in like 1990 when uh, L.A blossomed with the hip-hop with the graffiti probably about 87 88 but 1990 it, it kind of happened and uh speaking to the young people we formed i was i was elected the spokesperson to go up there against the mayor against the city hall against all these property owners the clergy and all that and tried to de defend ourselves we had meetings up at the Getty with um, uh, moderators who had just did General Motors, you know, and the negotiations. And then we had the city council, we had the police and all that. And for a whole day, we couldn't get to pass the word, the definition of graffiti. We argued and yelled at each other. It was difficult. And in telling the young people, hey, I'm fighting for you. And they're all saying, we don't care. We're gonna go and scratch and etch and throw acid in all these windows. I had organized one of the first graffiti shows at the Zero One on Melrose. So what did the kids do? They started scribing, scratching the big windows all up and down Melrose. All right, that came back to me. The owner said they were gonna sue me and all that. You know, it was my fault. It was difficult. We had meetings. I had learned talk it out with the kids because those 15 year olds were doing 80% of the damage. And they said, it's not, we're not doing art. We're not doing graffiti. We're vandals. <laughs> that was their intent. Right. I go, all right, you know, that's a young man's mentality. But I said, well, once you get in your 18 or so, you're going to want to be this gallery. And that's going to be closed off for you because they're going to close it off. And then also, later on in your life, you don't realize it. You're going to take what you have and you're going to start doing paintings because a painting is a service that you can bring home and spend more time with your vision, you know, with what's in your mind. A painting is not something to sell. It's actually your teeth, it's your iPad, <laughs> you know. Right. It was your computer screen and all that stuff. So I said, I had to wait till they got older. Now, if you don't do your paintings, your prints, your fashion, your skateboard, your T-shirts, your video, your jewelry line, your shoe designs and all that, and in working for other companies, you know, and uh, you're not a graffiti artist. <laughs> you know, <laughs> That's what it's turned into. Lots more to get into with Chaz Bojorquez and Guzmano Cesaretti. After the break, we'll talk about how the L.A. neighborhoods Guzmano photographed have changed and how Chaz feels about it. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Discover. Discover matches all the cash back you earn on your credit card at the end of your first year automatically, with no limit on how much you can earn. It's amazing because of all the places where Discover is accepted. 99% of places in the U.S. that take credit cards. So, when it comes to Discover, get used to hearing yes more often. Learn more at discover.com match. 2021 Nielsen Report. Limitations apply. <clears throat> a 
excuse me, everybody. I just uh, wanted to say a few words about the beautiful couple. I've known you two for a long time, and you get along like peanut butter and chocolate. Or, you know, like like uh, comedy and culture, like uh, Maximum Fun podcasts. <laughs> Actually, they're having a block party from October 11th to October 22nd, and that's kind of like your party, right? You have a community of friends and family, and... Max Fun has a community of shows and audiences that support them. You're having a new start with your life together, and Max Fun will be putting out new episodes that are especially welcoming to new audiences. So it's a great time to introduce your friends to your favorite show or jump into one you haven't tried Is before. Is still talking about podcasts? And they're setting up a volunteer event where we can help out our local communities. Plus, Maximum Fun is going to have games, prizes, Episode Rex, so much other fun stuff. What's wrong with Kyle? Is he okay? Oh! <laughs> anyways, anyways, sorry for getting carried away there. If it's all right with everybody here, let's all raise our glasses for a toast to the Max Fun Block <sighs> Party, which you can learn more about at maximumfun.org slash block party, and don't forget to join in on October 11th. Actually, that. That sounds pretty cool. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking with Los Angeles street artist Chaz Bojorquez and photographer Guzmano Cesaretti. Cesaretti is the author of the 1975 photography book Street Writers, a guided tour of Chicano graffiti. Let's get back into our conversation. Chaz, I have to ask you this. Um... I mentioned I live in one of the neighborhoods that's in this book, right? There's a certain amount of relating to my neighbors and listening to them talk about the neighborhood, talking about where I'm from, and I've been welcomed very kindly by my neighbors. But I also understand that I am an upper-middle-class white dude you know, I'm just because I didn't grow up upper middle class doesn't mean I'm not now. Um, an upper middle class white dude moving into this neighborhood that is not my neighborhood, and that's true even though I've lived there for twelve years, still not my neighborhood. And that is a neighborhood that is that has changed so much in a way that takes away the power of people that live there, right? And I wonder what that has been like for you as you have seen this neighborhood change over. I mean, we're talking about 60 years time to see the last 15 years as Highland Park has turned into hipster central. Hmm. You know, I saw as a child, Highland Park had beautiful department stores, sees candy, uh, soda fountain shops, you know, beautiful theaters and all that kind of stuff. Home of the original Forever 21. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yes. Well, that came much later, but, yeah. you know, it was very downtownish and it was very white and all that. Uh, true. And then later on in around in the 80s, drugs came in and all that in the 90s, Highland Park went down and, you know, and all that. And then now with the advent of the hipster movement and raise the property values astronomically. I think we're number three in the nation or something like that. Um, you know, it's, uh, I saw it all. And after I knew that I had, that I was never going to leave my community, that I had a, a, a invested interest, but my roots were here. So I'm constantly being asked about gentrification, what I think about it and all that, especially from Latino culture. They want me to get in the bandwagon and wave the flag. And, um, you know, I said, you really want it to be the way it used to be? You know that. I go, if you're renting, you're not invested. You get all your roads clean, your lights, you get those free police, fire department, and all that, and schools are all paid for if you rent. Right. If you buy and all that and pay for all these services and all that, you are invested in Highland Park. I bought a cheap little house up in the hills there, something that I could fix up. That a few years later, I bought another little house. I took that money. I eventually had four homes up in Mount Washington. The purpose was I became a landlord, assuming they said, 
you know, I'm in my mid-30s right now. I'm going to work hard right now because in my 60s, I'm going to be painting graffiti and I'm going to be unsuccessful. I'm going to be in my stuck in my garage doing what my love of my life and nobody can bother me and leave me alone. I planned on being a loser, <laughs> you know, <laughs> that I was going to have to sit on property. The other vision I had is down in Tijuana. I had cousins and relatives and all that lived in the hills. And I'm traveling around the world. I know what poverty is. Lack of, of any, you, you are stuck in there for life. You know, I did not want to be poor when I got old. So I said, I'm going to be, have some property and all that. And I'm going to paint whatever I want. It became, I became my own warrior in doing that. I invested in Highland Park and stuff. Now my properties have bought my $2 million home right now, it's paid off, everything's, I have very, very well off, beautiful wife, you know, very happy. What's the best time in my life right now, you know, because in planning that I was not gonna move, I supported Highland Park, you know. That's what it takes. Uh, you, uh, the hipster movement and everything else is what we needed. You are the new Highland Park. You are the face should be on a billboard <laughs> because it's going to take all of us. It was white culture, then Latino culture, then gangster culture, and all this. Now it's a mixed culture. It's going to be all of our culture. And Highland Park is a beautiful place, you know. Glad to have been here. If I had grown in East LA, I would have been a different person, you know. If people accepted my graffiti there in the 90s, I would not have been so self-reliant or so, you know, determined, determined as I am now, you know. So in some ways, all that struggle created who I am now. Yeah. There's a sadness to it, though. I mean, there was for me in the neighborhood that I grew up in when mm -hmm. I was a teenager and it changed. And today when I go there, you know, despite, <laughs> despite, I guess, being able to buy in because of my white privilege, right? Like I can go, I can walk around my neighborhood in my cool outfit and nobody's going to look twice at me um, the way that, you know, uh, a kid I went to high school with, they might look twice at. But there is a real sadness about the exercise of power, right? Like people who weren't in a position to buy a house or... I, no, there is going to be... Los Angeles is not like San Francisco. San Francisco is a museum. They preserve... Their houses, it still looks the same as when I was up there in, in the summer of love in 69. It still looks the same, except more houses are more painted, more gingerbread. High, Los Angeles is a place of change. My high school is not there anymore. Everything that I, well, of my history and all that, and my memories are different and changed. That's what it is. You, LA is about progressing and movement. And if you don't get on yeah. track and plan for the future, and the future is going to be more of a, somebody like you, then you're going to be left behind. I learned that from graffiti. Yeah. If I didn't engage the youth, at 40 years old, my ex-wife said, what are you doing with these kids? You're going to get in trouble. We're going to get sued, and they're going to take away our, our houses, and we're going to lose everything. And then what, your career is already in a gallery. What are you doing with 18-year-olds? I said, because they're the ones who are doing the real work. Right. Their graffiti is real. In some ways, I need to give up everything that I'm doing and go back and hang out with these 18-year-olds at 40 years old and organize graffiti shows and dialogue and create the movement. I told myself, is this a job or a career move? On any time somebody approached me, I go, it's a job, I'm going to charge you money, and it's just a work, do a title for a magazine or something. Right. Or is this getting a show for all these young graffiti men? or something to support, show up at a meeting, uh, buy cases of paints for them because they can't, uh, it's against the law at 18 years old and all that. Be there on site of the police show up and take and take the rap. Yeah, all this equipment is mine. Did that a lot of times in defense of the movement. That's what I did in the 90s. I said, if the movement is healthy, I will be healthy. So I went back to the youth. And that's, and since then, Retina, Sabre, Revoke, you know, uh, Shepard Ferry, all these guys, they're all part of the world. Mr. Cartoon, Esteban Oreo, all that. They're all famous because we all believed in each other at, at, at the time that we needed to, you know. it Maybe it, it took somebody older like me to be at that time and all that. 
But then all the graffiti movement busted out, it all went to the youth. It's all about New York. You want a big price painting, you buy a New York painting, not an LA painting, you know, that's still going on. So since then I've organized other shows, you know, and all that. Supporting, validating who we are on our terms. Screw New York, Europe, Miami, Basel, everybody, you know, we do it ourselves, you know. That's what Graffiti taught me, self-reliance. Well, Chaz Guzmano, thank you for taking all this time to be on Bullseye. It was so great to get to talk to you, and the, the book is really a, a special achievement. It was our privilege. Chaz Bojorquez and Guzmano Cesaretti. Guzmano's book, Street Writers, A Guided Tour of Chicano Graffiti, is back in print. We'll have a link for you to buy it on the Bullseye page at MaximumFun.org. In it, you can see work from Chaz and dozens of other artists from the mid-1970s. It's really something, and the portraits are gorgeous as well. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye is created from the homes of me and the staff of Maximum Fun in and around greater Los Angeles, California, where I celebrated getting my COVID vaccine booster shot by hanging a hammock chair on my porch. Just in the last moments of my strength today. <laughs> Just in time to collapse into it and spend some time with Susan Orlean's new book. Our show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our senior producer is Kevin Ferguson. Our producer is Jesus Ambrosio. Production fellows at Maximum Fun are Richard Roby and Valerie Moffat. We get help from Casey O'Brien. Our interstitial music is by Dan Wally, also known as DJW. Our theme song is called Huddle Formation. It's by the group The Go Team. Thanks very much to them and their label Memphis Industries for sharing it. Just got an enthusiastic endorsement for that theme music from my friend Brian Husky when I was on his show, Bald Talk. It's a bald people talk show. He loves The Go Team. You can also keep up with our show on Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. We post all our interviews there. I think that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.